Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 1. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we ask for help tonight. Help us to hear your word and to heed it and to have your wisdom. We need your help. We thank you for the light that you give us and the instruction that you give us for life. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The theme verse, you could say, of the book of Proverbs is Proverbs 1, 7. You see there, the beginning of the book, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. From there, the very first thing that this father says to his son is, hear my son. We're introduced to a few dynamics here in the book of Proverbs. The fact that it is a father speaking to a son, probably a young father speaking to a uh, son who is near to coming of age, uh, someone who has a potential to be a father himself in just a few years. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. And you could say that this is the first demonstration in a life of the fear of the Lord. It's that a son hears his father's instruction. Let's read, uh, starting in verse 8 down through verse 19, something that we might not expect to be the first lesson in the book of Proverbs, but it is uh, nonetheless, and I think, uh, Lord willing, by the end of our time, we'll see uh, why it is that he starts with this important lesson about companions. Proverbs 1, verse 8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. If you'll excuse me, uh, the moment I opened my notes, I got an update. So I think I'm going to preach from my computer here. <laughs> Just trying to decide what to do. I think the Lord brought to mind that I had another source for my notes here. It's the kind of thing you always dread, and then occasionally it happens. 
I don't know what kind of, sometimes things happen in a day. You don't know why they happened today. My her little Mazda didn't start. I knew it was probably, uh, I was thinking it was because of just the cold and I don't really drive it enough that the battery was not ever able to fully recharge, but it didn't start this morning. So I spent quite a bit of time this afternoon replacing a battery and had some corrosion and couldn't get it all tightened and everything. And it's like, okay, Lord, what is your purpose for me today? And the Lord brought the proverb to mind, better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. So I got a chance to interact with my neighbor, and I was thankful for that. And he's a very kind neighbor, and I'm thankful for him. He often tells me, uh, son, if you need anything, just give me a holler. That's what neighbors are for. And that was in my mind today. And he lent me some vice grips. So uh, praise the Lord for good neighbors and divine interventions in our lives. The fear of the Lord, someone said, is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. As I said, verse 8 is really showing uh, that fearing God here for a child starts with listening to parents. The parent, you could say, is God's representative. And there's good reason that God attaches blessing to heeding parents. This is the first commandment with promise, we're told because it's so much like heeding God. This passage here, as we've read it, it's applicable to young people, of course. It's a father to a son speaking about uh, companions who would lead him astray. These are the ones, of course, who are most susceptible to these influences. If this is a teenage boy, you can see why uh, a father would be talking about this to his son. But you might be asking yourself, why would King Solomon be warning a son in his own court about joining a gang. Does that strike you as a little bit weird? Isn't this kind of what it sounds like? Why? Who really is going to be tempted to join a gang? And why is this lesson number one in the book of Proverbs? I think you'll see as we go along that he's using a very vivid illustration of something that may very well could come to his son to prove a point about it, a certain kind of gaining, uh, getting ahead in life. There's a danger in trying to get ahead at other people's expense. Young people face temptations uh, from peers, from outside of them. They face temptations from within themselves to be out from under authority, perhaps. There's definitely a temptation here. But I believe this is also applicable to parents, as this whole section, you'll notice, is really framed as instruction to a son. He starts with, hear my son, and then everything that this companion is saying is from the words of that father. And then in the end, verses 17 through 19, really 15 through 19, he's showing him the end of the path. He's giving his son instruction. Don't consent to this way of living. This is how we ought to speak to our children, especially as they get older. This is a pattern we have, especially fathers, for how to speak to sons. But I hope you realize this is really applicable, not just to children, not just to parents, but to all of us, because this is really in view as a certain kind of community, a certain kind of person not to become implied as a certain kind of person and a group to be. The kind of group in view is the kind of person who tries to get ahead at the expense of other people. And that's very, really applicable to all of us. What does God call us to be in the church? It's a group of people who prefer others above ourselves. 
of course, Jesus himself is the greatest example of laying his life down for the good of others. It's the exact opposite. So what Solomon is describing in this first lesson to his son is the kind of person who is entirely self-seeking because that is self-destroying. Jesus taught, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Proverbs here, starting at verse 1-8, we see a man who gains the whole world by taking from others. I think we'll see how quickly he loses his soul in the process. So it starts here in verses 8 and 9 with the appeal of a parent. The appeal of a parent, really a loving parent, someone who's concerned for his son. He says, hear, O my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Who's doing the appealing here? This is a father speaking directly to his son, but it's also a mother teaching. It's mother and father. Supposes certain kind of input, a godly input from mothers and fathers, both of them in agreement with one another. And it is the teaching of parents who protects, or that protects children from choosing wrong companions. And there's a, a regularity about the appeal here to heed that instruction. And that's part of motivating this child to receive it. What are they encouraging? Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Hear it, accept it, obey it. And that word instruction is this word for, for discipline. The training of a father. Look ahead at Proverbs 3, verse 11. This is repeated in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. Proverbs 3, 11, he says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. The author of Hebrews seizes on this verse and says, you have to endure discipline. It's really a sign that God loves you. If you see God's discipline in your life, don't, don't try to squirt out from under it. Stay under it. That word discipline, my son, do not reject the discipline. You may have a note in the margin that it's instruction. It's the same word here back in chapter one, verse eight. Here, my son, your father's discipline, all of the training, the words, the the demonstrations of how to live life, the character that a son observes in his father, certainly the, the discipline, the physical discipline, all of the training, hear it, accept it, receive it. And the father says, do not forsake your mother's teaching. Don't forsake it. The idea is don't leave it unattended. Don't leave it uncultivated. And again, this is the father speaking about the mother's teaching. He knows the mother is doing it. He's supporting the mother in doing it. Don't leave it unattended. Don't just let it fall away like it's nothing. And this word, it's interesting. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. It's actually the word Torah. Don't forsake your mother's laws. Someone said these are home teachings. It's not that he's trying to make a parallel with the law of Moses. It's probably based on the law of Moses, but it's not identical with it. But these, these truths about what you should do and what you shouldn't do in life that you hear at home. Did you receive any of this when you were a child? 
Don't stick your hand in the oven. Okay? Some of these just things around the house that you learned about life from your mom, maybe about relationships. This is, this is what that teenage girl is really like. This is what all teenage girls are really like. Okay? Maybe this is a mother to a son teaching him about the way things are, the way relationships work, the way that he's going to be able to provide for himself. Don't leave those unattended. Take them into your heart. Make them a part of who you are. So I was reflecting on this. How many, how many Disney movies turn on a point in the plot that's related to an influence on a young, naive boy or girl who rejects her father's teaching or resents his mother's directives? There's a, there's a lot of mileage you can get out of that, of course. And these children wander far away because they won't listen to their mother. It's also interesting that often the, the mother or the father is cast as the bad guy, which is not impossible necessarily, but it is quite a theme in those movies, if you notice. But it's, it's refusing to heed some, some rule or some maxim about the way this family is going to be. But the father is encouraging his son not to reject this. Hear it. Don't forsake it. And what are the benefits? Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. This is beauty, not wealth, but you could say prestige. Someone compared this image to think like a gold medal, something that's beautiful but also meaningful. Something that really is honorable in the sight of others. This graceful wreath, ornaments on your neck. He's not promising wealth. Embracing God's wisdom might not make you rich, but it will make your life beautiful. Certainly to yourself, it will make your life pleasing. To others, it will make your life appealing. But to God, it will make it acceptable. God approves of those who live by his wisdom and those who live by the wisdom of godly parents. That is a benefit indeed. And here God is really appealing based on reality. This is what's going to happen if you listen. Good things. And I think you could draw that from the law. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that your life may be long on the earth. There's, there's just a direct correlation between obeying God, obeying your parents, and the blessings that come. It's reality. But as we'll see, what the Father is trying to show the Son is that those who are, who are really snared in this sort of sin, they kind of want to write a different story. They want to live in an alternate reality. Part of their foolishness consists of in their unwillingness to accept reality as God has ordered it. Like we were saying last week, they want to break the laws and have the benefits of having kept them. It's like they're trying to create this alternate reality that God will not allow to be. And this is why part of the fear of the Lord is just living with skill in God's world the way he designed it to be. Because things just work a certain way. Because God made them that way. And what this father warns of in verse 10 is that these sinners, they want company. 
They're never content to be alone. Listen to my wisdom, verse 10, my son, if sinners entice you. If sinners entice you. And here we see the invitation of a wicked friend down through verse 14, followed by a lesson that the father draws. It's really the end of a wicked friend. And my title for this sermon is When Gaining is Losing. When Gaining is Losing. And you'll see how there's a pursuit of gain here. But what's the invitation? Who is this? If sinners entice you, what's the image he's painting? This is the idea of this word is a habitual sinner. This is probably someone who's a criminal. Think like a leader of a gang. Okay. And what are they doing? They're enticing someone. They're luring you out. We've talked about this in our men's Bible fellowship. Someone used this image of the description of James chapter one. Every man is drawn away. He is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lusts and enticed. And just this image of somebody going bass fishing, right? And the bass I've heard, I'm not a bass fisherman. I'm not a fisherman at all. They like to live on the side of a bank under a lot of nice covering, maybe like something like a weeping willow on the edge of a river, maybe some rotted wood under the water. And if you can go to a place like that, you're probably going to find some good bass there. And your job as the fisherman is to convince that bass that that place where he has everything that he needs isn't good enough. You're trying to create discontent in that bass, bass with what? Well, who knows? I mean, ask a bass fisherman, maybe a worm, maybe a chicken feed. I don't know what you fish with. You're, you're, you're trying to create discontent and lure him out. That's what the sinner is doing. He's enticing you from where you are. He's luring you. He's dangling the bait. And what should you do about it? Don't consent. This is like Joseph. Resist. Refuse. What was, what was, being, what was tempting him to come out from the shelter of that bank? It was Potiphar's wife. Come lie with me. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to care. You have all the authority you want. You're a handsome man. I want you. No, no, no. And what was his reasoning? How could I do this great sin against Potiphar, but against God? Don't consent. But what's the appeal, especially to a young man? If they say... Come with us. Let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall have one purse. There's excitement here. There's a thirst for blood. Let us lie and wait for blood. That would be maybe a little bit shocking. There's no cause for this. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. That idea of waiting and hiding. There's a lot of anticipation about this quest that they're going on. There's profit in it. Just imagine how rich we can get. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. And then there's a certain kind of belonging here too. We shall have one purse. We're in it together. It was my observation when I had an occasion to live and work in a men's dorm on a college campus that the more 
18 to 22 year old male, males were collected in the same room, the, 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 the proportion of people in the room was directly proportionate to the level of intelligence in the room. So the more men packed into a dorm room, the stupider things got. And the more they could get talked into things and talk themselves into things. There's just something about that dynamic. And maybe you know this. I know I've talked with some of you about this. You just get with somebody, maybe a brother or something, and you just get really, you get really loopy and goofy. And you do things and you say things that in your right mind you wouldn't otherwise do. Because especially so for males, but. There's, there's something about this belonging and this camaraderie and the, the bonding experience of doing it together. And you see the boldness here. It starts with, here, come on, but then it's throw your lot in with us. Okay, you're thinking about this. Now I'm trying to seal the deal and get you to make a decision. That's what they're offering. This is an invitation from a wicked friend. And if you're wondering, who is this? Why does he start here? We'll get there. But I was helped to think in terms of one man who did this very kind of thing, lying in wait for innocent blood. Haman, didn't he do this? He had this bloody plan to annihilate Mordecai. Why don't you turn with me to Esther chapter 3? There was no cause for what he was doing other than his own pride. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalm, Proverbs. We're introduced to these various characters. Mordecai saves the life of the king. You may be familiar with the story of Esther. But this man, Haman, is promoted in the court of King Ahasuerus, kind of without explanation, as it's recorded for us. He's promoted with a whole bunch of authority. And verse 2, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither paid, uh, bowed down nor paid homage. This is Mordecai. He's a scribe in the kingdom of the Persians. He's a Jew, hasn't returned to the homeland after exile, but he's there with his niece, it seems, Esther. And people are disturbed by this. I mean, everybody's bowing down and there's this one guy standing up and there's obviously something wrong. Verse three, the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew. And this is, I believe, about the closest we get to a reference to the God of the Jews. Because what else was Mordecai saying other than, I worship no one but Yahweh? He wouldn't bow to this man because he was a Jew. And then Haman actually sees it, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Talk about 
innocent. There's no cause for this. Maybe there's the law of the Medes and Persians that was his justification, and it was in part. But he hatches this wicked plot to commit genocide in his nation against the Jews for no cause. He wanted power. He wanted recognition from Mordecai. He's a bully, really. And he was going to kill to get it. And then if you look ahead at verse 8, he hatches this plot. There's even an indication that this would be financially profitable to the king. He lays his plan. Then verse 8, Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. See how sanitized that is? It's wicked. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. No strings attached, O king. It'll be clean. It'll be easy. And then, of course, from that point, things develop. He has all this animosity towards Mordecai. The thing he doesn't know is that the new queen is actually related to Mordecai, and she's a Jew, and now he's threatening the people of king's favorite wife, and the queen goes in and appeals to the king after all several feasts, and the king gets angry. But what has happened along the way? The king finds out that this man Mordecai, who he doesn't even realize is about to be exterminated, saved his life, and he wants to honor him. And he asks, Haman, how do I go about honoring the man that I really value in my kingdom? And Haman in his pride thinks, oh, it must be me. I'm his favorite, favorite guy. So he gives him this whole plan about how to honor himself while he's outside, out back, building gallows to hang Mordecai. And then the king says, great idea. Go march Mordecai around the city and honor him. Oh, what a reversal. And then what happens after that? He gets hung on his own gallows once the, the queen appeals for her life and her people. Think, too, about, you remember the end of that whole story when it's really been sent out as a decree that anybody can kill a Jew on this and this day. So after Haman is dead, what do they do? Well, we can't revoke the law of the Medes and Persians. Oh, no. It's actually a little bit comical, I think, in how it's written. So they just write another one to contradict the previous law that says, okay, the Jews can defend themselves. And it says the, it, on the day that the Jews were to be killed, they killed their enemies. And the king hears in the city of Susa, there's 500 men who are killed. And the king's, whoa, he's astounded by this. But the Jews defend themselves famously. And what's happening? Haman is destroyed by his own devices. All the people who followed him in their bloodlust are destroyed. That invitation came to them. And what they didn't know is really what's behind the curtain here. And that's what the father does next. There's the invitation of this wicked friend. But what does the father want his son to know? There's an end of that path. That if you take one step on the path, you're, you're embracing the end of the path too. Here's what it is. 
Verse 15, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. And it's not just other people's blood. And he's going to get there. He, he cites a proverb here. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. But these sinners lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So this invitation is going to come, he's telling his son, in some form. And what are you going to do with it? When do you deal with the invitation? You deal with it at the beginning. Don't, don't step in the way. Don't say, well, I have principles. I can walk with them, and I'll just rely on these things I've learned before. No, just avoid them as companions altogether. Why? Because of where the path always leads. It always leads to sin. It always leads to blood. And it won't just be you always in the driver's seat. And what's the result of walking on this road? This proverb here, he gives an illustration from nature. It's useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. And you might kind of wonder why he's saying this. Well, He's making a comparison between this bird and this person. And it's, I was helped to understand what, what are the birds governed by? Well, they're governed by their instinct. And if they see someone laying a trap for them, their instinct says, I'm not going to go land on that trap, even though the food looks really tasty. I'm going to go be an early bird tomorrow and get the worm. Okay. What is What are humans governed by? Not instinct, but reason. Reason says... If there's a trap right there, I'm not going to walk into it. You've got to be really empty-headed to go walk to your own harm, right? And that's what he's saying. It's useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. You have to do it while the bird isn't watching if it's going to be effective. But it's a contrast. These people, they're lying in wait for their own blood. It's almost like they're setting their own trap and stepping into it. They ambush their own lives. And there's a deliberate parallel, I believe, to show the absurdity of this. Look at verse 11. They're saying, come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Look at verse 18. They lie in wait for blood. It's actually their own blood. They ambush the innocent without cause. No, they actually are ambushing their own lives. It's absurd. okay, dad, I think I'll be able to see it when it comes. If somebody says, hey, you want to kill a guy and make some money today? I'll tell him no, okay? That might be easy enough. But what's the moral of the story? Solomon does something unexpected here, and I think we need to look carefully to catch it. What's his application? Verse 19, so are the ways of everyone who gains by violence, or literally cutting off. It takes away the life of its possessors. What's his application here for his son? This is what happens to everyone who gains by taking from others. And the reason I'm saying that is because this word, it's, it's, it's a cut word, like a, like a tailor would cut the threads of a shirt, or a weaver would cut the, the, the fibers of a carpet he just made. So you could say it this way, such are the ways of anybody who 
gets a cut by taking a cut or who profits by ripping someone off, I think is the sense of what he's saying. There could be violence involved in cutting off someone. You could cut off their life, but it doesn't have to be physical violence. It could just be deceit. It could be ill will. It could be malice. You're trying to get ahead at the expense of someone else. What do we say in the corporate world? I stepped on people to climb the ladder, right? Or some variation of that. You're, you're getting ahead at the expense of other people. What Solomon is saying is as crazy it is as it is for this mobster to lie and wait for his own blood, that's how it is with everyone who tries to get ahead at the expense of other people. What happens? That cutting off of someone else takes away his own life. That's exactly what happened to Haman. He was trying to get ahead and get his way and be in charge and feel honored and powerful at the expense of other people. And very literally, it took away his life. He hung on his own gallows in some real poetic justice. The more power he had, the deeper he was digging his own grave. Another phrase we have is, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. When you crave to get ahead and to get your own way at the expense of another person, you get absolutely blinded by it, such that you can't even see straight to look out for your own well-being anymore. You become foolish as you abide by a foolish life principle. This is what happens to everyone who gains at the expense of other, others. Someone said, sin is self-delusive and self-destructive. Watch out for the deceitfulness of sin. Nobody's going to pull the wool over my eyes. We, we like to think ourselves above being deceived, right? It's really a value that we have that we're, we're cunning enough not to be deceived. But do you play with sin thinking that it will not deceive you? Sin deludes in ways that we can't even anticipate, we can't even avoid. You will never sin and win, is what he's teaching his son. If you have it in your heart, for instance, towards someone to cut them off in some way for your benefit, that is you rushing off towards your own destruction. I'm going to get back at them for what they did to me. This is, this is what revenge is, isn't it? Don't even enter that path. Don't go on the path of revenge. It's a trap. Of course, as I was thinking of modern illustrations, gangs, I think, are a good one. But maybe we're not wondering who's which, you know, if it's the which faction is in control of Bailey Road or something. But I do think this thing happens. This kind of thing happens. I recently heard from a friend that there's a, a Facebook scam that he heard about, and he was wondering if he was being uh, approached by where someone hacks someone's account and poses as them and tries to solicit compromising information from all of their Facebook friends by tempting them 
And then when they get it, they threaten to expose them to all of their Facebook friends in exchange for money. This is wickedness. And it's taking the, away the life of the person who's trying to get ahead at the expense of somebody else. Of course, what is insider trading? You're, you're trying to get ahead at the expense of other shareholders with information that you know that other people don't. It's illegal in our country. Selling things that are a scam, maybe in some kind of pyramid scheme. Even bullies at school, ganging up on another kid, tormenting them to despair. You hear about these call centers in who knows where, trying to extort people for money and, and trick them, scam them. Computer hackers stealing people's identities. Even... Even many of the modern industries where there's a lot of money in them, if you will just perpetuate this lie, maybe about gender. I can do this medical procedure or sell this medicine at the expense of this innocent person. This is wickedness, and it's taking away the life of its possessor. Someone suggested even a neighbor who needs bad things to be true of someone else in order to justify himself, gossiping someone's reputation to death. Even a faction splitting a church or trying to take down a pastor to get my own way at someone else's expense. You're never going to win in the end. I think another good illustration from Scripture of being thirsty for blood of the innocent and roping someone else in with you is Ahab and Jezebel. What happened with Ahab and Jezebel? Ahab saw a vineyard that he wanted belonging to Naboth and he asked him for it and Naboth said, no, it's in my family. I'm going to keep it. And Ahab went and pouted. And Jezebel said, what's the big deal? Just go get it. You remember what she did? She wrote to the elders of his city and said, have a feast, set Naboth at the head of the feast, get two false witnesses to come in and say that he blasphemed God and the king. That's a lie. That's an ambush against an innocent man, actually probably a godly man. And they did it. They joined the plot. Ahab got his vineyard. They stoned Naboth, killed him. Ahab got his way. He got what he wanted. But what happened to him? Do you remember that Elijah came to him and they have this exchange, oh, troubler of Israel, and Elijah says, no, you're the troubler of Israel. And he says, where Naboth died, as the dogs came and licked up his blood, that's what's going to happen to you. It took away his own life, took away Jezebel's life. And Ahab, maybe he was kind of like this fool being led to slaughter by Jezebel, who was a wicked woman. Maybe she wasn't enticing him in that moment. But when did she, the, the Bible actually says he, he did all of this wickedness because his wife Jezebel incited him. It's not the same as enticing him, but when did she entice him? When did Ahab step onto the path with her? 
he did it at marriage, didn't he? He did it when he married her. A Baal worshiper? Someone who didn't fear God? That was his fateful step. He stepped on the path. By the end of his life, he really did. This is true. He got the end of the path, too. That came to define him. So the admonition here is don't go in that path. Avoid being companions with that person altogether. Because when you take that first step onto the path of gain at another person's expense, you're embracing the consequences too. And this is how it will work. You can't choose your actions and your consequences. God decides what the consequences are. So what does a man profit if he gains the whole world at the expense of his worst enemy? Nothing. Nothing. There's no satisfaction in it. There's no enjoyment of it. There's no vindication. There's no happiness. There's only sadness and ruin. So here wisdom comes to us in the voice of a father, gently, kindly imploring you to receive instruction. Don't enter the path. What path should you choose instead? Fear the Lord. Turn your foot from evil. And turn your foot from the evil path of seeking your own good at another person's expense. And lest this be really heavy, what does that leave us with instead? Can we kind of reason our way towards? Well, seeking other people's good at our expense. Isn't that the complete opposite? Rather than seeking your good at another person's expense, the example of Christ is to seek the good of others at his own expense, to lay down his life. And what happened when he did this? There was a great harvest of souls, wasn't there? We think that by going about things our way to get our chunk of flesh, that's going to be the best way. But it's just like this total turning of our world upside down to say, no, if you lay yourself down for others, there will be great blessing. Jesus laid down his life for his friends, and he won many of them. This is what love for others does. And this is really what should characterize our church, is laying down our good for other people's profit. Laying down our rights, laying down our success for the benefit of others. And may the Lord help us to do this, because the payoff will be worth it. Even as certain as the payoff is of getting ahead at someone else's expense, so too is self-sacrifice and self-giving. It really is worth losing your life in order to find it. That's the path that Jesus walked. It's the one that he sets for us. And to do it, we need God's wisdom, and we need to receive his wisdom in humility, adopting his path rather than our own, which might be natural, might seem appealing, but to choose God's paths that is the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you that you warn us of something that is very near to all of us and very tempting. 
I pray that you would teach us to lay down our lives, certainly for you, but in love for others and for their good. Really, we come into the world looking out for ourselves, wanting what's best for us. And in our sin, we resort to really sinful ways of going about it and malicious ways of operating towards even people that we love. I pray that you would keep us from that, Lord, we, because it only is losing. Help us to lay up treasure in heaven. Even tonight, help us to love and serve each other. Thank you for our church family. Pray that you'd help us to build each other up in love as we fear you and adopt your paths for our lives. We pray it in Christ's name.